0: Right now in America, one in ten people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction, and of those, some 50 to 90 percent will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman, I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, It's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. People sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. Hi, this is Ron Chapman and welcome back to Progressive Recovery. Really looking forward to this session. You know, periodically we come up with people or material that we don't quite know what to do with. So we just call this our progressive content, ha ha ha, and uh, that's right up our alley. Today we're going to talk a little bit about, well, I guess it's humor. Maybe it's not taking ourselves too seriously, or it could go any number of other directions because I'm delighted to be hanging out here with my friend Liz, who's got a great comedy riff. She does. She'll tell you. More, she'll tell you more about that. She's a. Uh, she does stand up related to the recovering world. Uh, she's also proven to be funny in a lot of other ways. And of course, she's in recovery. So I'm delighted, Liz. Welcome to Progressive Recovery.
1: Thanks, Ron. Glad to be here.
0: So we always start with a you know a little bit of like. How'd you get into the recovery? What's your story? What brought you to the doors of of this new way of living? And and uh, let our listeners hear it.
1: All right, I've been told this is the five minute version, so I'll try to be brief. <laughs> I, um, as many of us do, I started drinking in high school. I believe I was a blackout all the way drinker from the get go, um, and then a few years into my drinking career, I actually stopped drinking for religious reasons. I got very, very seriously religious. And, um, didn't, so I was dry all through college, but still Mm. crazy. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I really wanted to go into therapy and instead I decided that the religious life was too much for me and I should go back to drinking. (laughs) 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 And so I did that for a while really well. And, um, I basically, um, after college. I moved overseas and I had a job where I was training people and part of my job was to introduce them to the country where we were living, which involved a lot of taking people to the bars. So basically I got paid to drink, which was fantastic. And I had a career that was sort of, um, you know, the the career that I had wanted. I had everything I wanted. I got paid to travel. Um, I had a fulfilling career with a great company. And within about a year and a half, that became way too much hassle for me, way too much responsibility. And so I moved back to the United States um, and eventually became a bartender until that became way too much responsibility. (laughs) And then I was an artist because, hey, if you're an artist, you can just like smoke weed and drink scotch all day, right? And Be a prolific artist. Well, not so much. Um, I did the best that I could, but I really, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get my shit together. You know, Mm. I would wake up in the morning, roll a big fat joint sit down at the computer, start editing photos, and lose the plot about 20 minutes in. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so I met a guy in a bar in Florida. We got married. We hit the road on a drunken honeymoon road trip, ran out of gas in Utah, spent about eight months there, bought one-way tickets to Maui after that because we heard there was work and we had spent this whole eight-month winter in Utah. So we went to Maui and in Maui, I think it became clear to both of us that we were alcoholics because here we are at Maui, the land of the sun. We lived literally walking distance to Jaws, Pe- Peahi, that huge mm. wave, right? And there's all these fit surfers around, everybody's loving life. And here we are in the backyard, hand to cooler, grab a beer, whoosh, open the beer, drink, talk about all the cool stuff we might do one day, but we're not doing it. Our best friends at this point are like 60 year old totally shot out alcoholics who live behind the bar, you know, in a place that's about to get torn down. So it became pretty apparent that we had a problem. Um, then we had a baby. Um, my husband continued to go to the bars after work while I was stuck at home with the kid. Um, our marriage got to a place where we, neither of us was really happy. And, um, eventually, uh, we got to a point where it was either split up or something needed to change. And I wasn't really sure what that something should be. Um, And so I actually called my mother and my mother-in-law and just said, look, this is what's going on. You know, our marriage is falling apart. I really don't know what to do. I don't want to leave him, but something needs to change. What do you suggest? And my mother said, have you ever considered Alcoholics Anonymous? Which, no, I hadn't. And um, so my husband came home from work and I said, honey, would you go to meetings, AA meetings? And he said, yes. And I was very, very surprised. Because I figured he'd say, hell no. And then that would be my excuse to leave him because he was unreasonable. (laughs) But he said yes. And he turned it off like that night or the next day to his very first meeting. And I was like, great. And he left the house and I opened a beer and I was like, got rid of him. And then I thought to myself, oh shit, if he actually quits drinking, I'm actually going to have to quit drinking too. Because that wouldn't be so cool of me to keep drinking, even though he was the alcoholic. So then I went to um, a couple of meetings and finally identified myself as an alcoholic and that I had a problem and um, quit drinking. And I'm happy to say my husband and I are both um, sober since that point and we're getting ready to celebrate 10 years of marriage in May.
0: Really cool. It's, it's actually fairly unusual for, for, for people to stay together once they, once they get sober because it changes
1: everything. People keep telling me that. <laughs> I feel really lucky because I do understand how you could maybe sober up and look at the person you're with and go, holy shit, what was I thinking? <laughs> Luckily, that wasn't our case. We were way, we were not a very good couple when we were drinking, but we're really becoming a better and better and better couple. And it's becoming more apparent to us both why we're together, you know, the more that we're in sobriety and the more we grow. Yeah. It makes more sense instead of less.
0: So one of the things we know that happens in recovery of, of all kinds, regardless of the kind of recovery a person's in, is, is people discover things about themselves. They discover paths, they talents, you name it. Y- you have a really interesting story about how this 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 comedy deal found you uh, right. that I think our, our listeners would love to hear. So how, how'd, you, how,
1: how'd that find you, Liz? <laughs> well, comedy found me, um, as I said, in my... In my um, story, I traveled a lot in my life. Overseas, you know, and in the United States, I traveled a lot and I have done and seen a lot of cool things. So in my first year of recovery, I would hear people saying things like, oh, I never knew I had an interest of this before. I never knew I could paint before. I never knew I could dance before. Isn't it great? You know, recovery shows us we have new skills. And I thought to myself, those are some boring people. They must have not done anything but drink in their old lives. I've already explored everything. You know, there is there's no more secret. There's no more surprises in my future. Well, then I started going to a women's retreat um, down at the beach, um, which involved a talent show. The first year that I went to this retreat, I attended the talent show, and to my perspective, it was painful. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Not, you know, they were trying hard to make it fun, but for me, like, there wasn't a whole lot of talent happening. It wasn't very exciting. And the second year, I tried to enlist um, some various people I thought were really funny. And I kept saying, some stand-up comedy would be really great. Like, you're funny. You should come next year and do stand-up comedy. And nobody <laughs> took me up on it. And suddenly, ding-dong, I had the thought, maybe I should do comedy, which I'd never considered before. Never. Never never in my life and actually my grandmother was a very funny lady and she made me laugh and i can remember now it makes sense looking back i always have surrounded myself with the funniest people you know all through school i've always enjoyed watching stand up comedy going to stand up comedy it's it's been something i've been drawn to my whole life and and yet it was like water to the fish it's never mm-hmm. something i thought about or explored and um so anyway, so I decided to do some comedy for this talent show to help them out because I was having a bad attitude. You know, I was going to just go to the retreat, but skip the talent show. And I thought to myself, you know, don't be that girl. Don't be negative. Don't be a hater, you know, contribute something. But I had no material. So now I have a, a, a date, a future date to do something, but no material. And so my first set series of jokes, I'll recreate for you today, just a couple of them. Go ahead. So there's a Southern comedian, Jeff Foxworthy. Most people know who he is because he went to fame with a series of jokes that went something like this. If you've ever been too drunk to fish, you might be a redneck. Well, I say, if you've ever gotten your fish too drunk, you might be an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) If you bring your own bottle of wine to a restaurant, you might be thrifty. You might be a wine snob. If you bring your own bottle of wine to a PTA meeting, you're probably an alcoholic.
0: Visions of PTA meetings. Right. Yeah.
1: If you've ever paid for a 40-ounce in pennies, you might be an alcoholic. <laughs> Ron has no idea what I'm talking about, obviously. <laughs> no, I do. You can't relate to that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was like, yep, no idea. Yep, I'm good. <laughs>
1: Have you ever been at a job interview and had to fill out the paperwork and where it says, have you ever been convicted of a felony and you have to check the box yes or no, and you wish there was a box that said maybe, (laughs) (laughs) then you were probably a blackout drinker like me. (laughs) I just want to be
0: clear, I do not understand that.
1: And so that was my first set of jokes. And then um, around the same time that I you know, decided to do this very small stand-up gig, I was getting irritated the way we do, um, with people in my life, both in 12 step programs and out. And because I was focusing on recovery comedy, I thought, well, why don't I take all these things I'm frustrated with in the recovery world and write jokes about them? And that was so therapeutic. I think I was getting to a point where I could have decided to stop going to meetings. But instead, I wrote jokes about the things that were pissing me off, and then I would look forward to meetings, like, you know, instead of <laughs> <laughs> instead of worrying, uh, like, oh, that guy's going to be there again, and he's going to say that thing that I hate, I would go and like be giggling under my breath, and I would look forward to seeing the people that irritated me, because it's all material. Material. <laughs> so here's a curious question about
0: that, Liz. So that like changed, I mean, what we we call it a grievance or a resentment
1: or whatever. That, that changes it, doesn't it? Absolutely. It did for me. How so? Good question. I mean, I'm not sure of the mechanism, (laughs) but I think uh, it it speaks to the broader point of um, humor and not taking ourselves too seriously. And laughter is the best medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, they say that, and I find that to be true. Um, Even in my home life, I have two small children and a husband, which provides lots of other comic material. Which, if it, what you weren't being funny about it, could be tragic or annoying, right? Yeah. But um, you know, finding the humor in the situation, um, it for me, it's just really important, and it makes life fun. You know, so, life should be fun. So, give us an
0: example. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, you yeah, uh, uh, fictionalize <laughs> if you need to, but I'm sure people are thinking, yeah, but there's this deal, and it pisses me off, and it's like all drama, and and I can't possibly find a way to make that funny. How do you do that?
1: Right. Well. Um, Earlier today, I was having lunch with you, and we were discussing, you know, my children, which are a great source of um, amusement. And um, but raising children is also difficult. And I've thought a lot about. Obviously, my husband and I are both recovering alcoholics. Chances are, one or both of my children are going to go down this path because because they have the double dose of the, the alcoholic gene, okay. if there is such a thing. Yep. Um, and you know. I don't know the exact statistics, but I imagine what, I mean, I, my guess is half of the entire world goes through some form of alcoholism or addiction. Mm -hmm. And so even if I weren't an alcoholic, chances are still that one or both of my children would go through that. Yeah. And, um, you know, in my oldest child is very responsible. He was born just different from me. I don't understand him. Like we were having dinner one night and we were eating something. He said, mom, I don't like this. And I said, okay, well, and he said, but is it good for me? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, I'll eat it then. And my husband and I looked at each other and thought, where did he come from? <laughs> because that's not how we are. But my youngest child, um, we refer to him as future friend of Bill. I refer to him as friend future, of Bill... future friend of Bill W.
0: Okay, got it. The, the recovery rooms.
1: yeah. The recovery rooms. And my husband hates it when I say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I had an experience recently where I had to take him to the dentist. And there's a new thing in pediatric dentistry where instead of doing the laughing gas, which he had always refused in the past, um, or just going straight to the Novocaine, there is a drug lollipop.
0: (laughs) A drug lollipop.
1: Right? You want one, don't you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of wondering about the experience. I didn't have those when I was in the chair.
1: So I was a little nervous. I had never given drugs of any kind to this child who is now five years old, but he has terrible teeth just weak teeth. So he he needed some fillings. So we ordered the drug lollipop for him and I'm sitting in the waiting room with him and we have to give him, let him suck on it for a few minutes before it takes effect. And so I gave it to him and he said, Oh, this doesn't taste very good. And I said, well, you only need to give it two or three licks to work. And he said, well, let me try it again. And he said, Ugh, still tastes bad. And I said, well, why don't I put it away then? He said, no, no, no. Give me that. And I thought, Hmm. <laughs> So, then he proceeded to get very kind of loopy, disinhibited, made some loud, obnoxious comments about the woman on the other side of the waiting room. Then he groped for my breasts and said, come on, mom, show them to me. (laughs) Now, the secretary is sitting there. The receptionist is dying laughing at this point already. The dentist comes out, said, we're ready for him now. We take him back to the chair. He gets his dental work done. He is happy. He is feeling no pain. He falls asleep in the dental chair pees himself, and then wakes up crying, asking if he can have some more of that yucky sucker. And I thought to myself, yep, <laughs> he's probably one of us. Oh, good. So, oh, so,
0: uh, I'm crying. Um, so, so um, it's, it, it, all right, so, so, like, that's awful, right? <laughs> it is. It's like, and it's some of the people listening are listening go like, oh, Jesus, what about my kids now? Lollipops with drugs in them. So, I mean, how, how do you work with that? I mean, because on the one hand, it's like, oh, my God, this is tragic. Look at my kid here. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, it is pretty funny.
1: Right. I find it to be a funny story. I don't know. For, for me, humor um, serves a life-saving function. And I think mm. you'll find this, um, you know, when I was in high school, I actually went for a year to Ukraine um, in the former Soviet republics um, as a rotary exchange. And it was 1991, the year when everything fell apart. And I got introduced there at that point to this idea of black humor, which doesn't mean African-American humor. It means Mm -hmm. like dark humor. So where life is so tragic, you either want to slit your wrists or make a joke about it because if you can Uh, laugh, there's hope for another day. Yeah, And that's sort of the function that, that humor has for me, you know, the story about my kid. Yeah. It's kind of sad, like that. I can already tell he's going to have a rough life ahead of him. He's probably going to have an addiction to a substance at some point. Um, You know, but if I can find the humor in it, I can live with that because it's really the point. I'm powerless anyway. There's not a whole lot I can do about it. It's his road to trudge. Yeah. You know, I, so I can start crying about it now when he's only five or I can see the humor in it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, on a related note about not to be too exact, but about 75 days ago, (laughs) I entered what I now know is to be smobriety, which means I gave up smoking cigarettes. Ah. Nicotine Anonymous calls this smobriety, which makes me laugh. Smobriety. (laughs) (laughs) And um, one of the things that really helped me is a friend of mine who never has been a smoker, but had parents who were double pack-a-day smokers, so very anti-smoker. She decided to send me a funny picture or joke every day. You know, that I was quitting smoking. And that laugh a day, I looked forward to that like you would not believe. And I credit her and those funny things to keeping me stopped smoking. It was so important. So take a wild shot at this. I mean, so what's that
0: that doing to us? I mean, does it like... It must be altering brain chemistry. It must be—I mean, something, right? Good I mean, it's, it's changing us.
1: I mean, they say there's that Reader's Digest: laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. You know, I'm. Sure there has been research that I believe it. You know, it releases endorphins when you laugh. Right. It, it causes some relaxation. Yeah. You know, maybe dopamine receptors yeah. get filled. All these things happen. Yeah. You know, and and also just the relaxation and the sense of connectedness. I don't think you can. It's not the same kind of laughter if you're alone in the void. Imagine being a castaway on a desert island and there's nobody else around. Mm-hmm. You might have that insane <laughs> cackling laughter, <laughs> but not the laughter yep. like I just heard from you. To yep. laugh like that in a fun way, it involves more than one person. And so laughter is a connection between people. We make each other laugh.
0: So that is so interesting because you know there's a whole lot more information coming forward about how important... The, the connection is, the, the community, the person-to-person stuff, which would be that connection you were just
1: talking about. Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely.
0: So the example you used about your son, which could be either uh, i mean, you could tell that either way, right? That could be, yeah, I could that tell
1: could... that as a tragedy if yeah. I chose.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do your kids take this? I mean, I presume you're funny with them too, right?
1: How do they take my uh, comedy career? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's a good one, actually. Yeah. Um, I was going to a gig. I had a gig somewhere a few months back and I was in the car with my kids and we're driving. And I said something about, you know, mommy's going to be on stage tonight. And they said, Oh, you're telling jokes. And I said, yes. And they asked me some questions about how that works. And my oldest child said, Mom, you get paid to stand on a stage and tell knock-knock jokes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, no, but that would be awesome. So the bar has been raised. I have to come up with an adult knock-knock joke. Ah, I think that would be pretty amazing.
0: And what about what about the recovering community? I mean, what's their I mean, because it's it's pretty clear that in the recovering community, there's a, some of it is deadly earnestness, and perhaps that's appropriate on yeah, I mean, okay, so we're dealing with some difficult stuff, but How's the recovering community take this? Uh, right this, this poking fun at?
1: Well, I um I have been asked to perform at quite a few different recovery places. I actually just did a gig at the South Carolina AA State Convention um in front of an audience of two hundred and fifty people. Wow. Most of whom said it was funny. The people yeah. who didn't think it was funny didn't come and tell me about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um I have um, performed at um um, detox centers, um, oh,
0: that's interesting, which, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. which talk was, about
0: a place that needs a boost of humor.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, also at, uh, different 12 step, um, events, yeah. various 12 step programs have asked me to do things. So, um, I also have practiced, I went out into the community and did what I'm calling secular humor, like non recovery mm-hmm. humor, just to see if I'm really funny in real life against <laughs> other comedians. Um, and that was a really great experience and it turns out, you know, I do have an aptitude for that and, and I can get in there and compete, um, with them. But I'm still an amateur in that world, but I've actually been paid to do recovery comedy. So I'm no longer an amateur comedian in that world, which is fantastic. So I feel like it's been really well received. And along the way I started looking up on the computer, you know, 12 step comedy recovery jokes. And there's actually a website where you can book recovery comedians no for various events. Yeah. Huh. I think it's called like One Laugh at a Time, something like that. I forget. But so I'm not the first. There are, you know, recovery comedy is a thing.
0: Mm. It does immediately make me wonder, though, because, okay, if humor is a hot, if it's a tonic, right, mm-hmm. it's good for us, brain chemistry, all of that. I still wonder about – because you had mentioned in one of our earlier conversations that there's a basic irreverence to humor. Uh, and so let's assume we're a bunch of people taking ourselves too seriously. Right. I, I presume you get some pushback on occasion?
1: I actually haven't res- gotten any pushback no kidding. yet. Yeah. No, I mean, which I find amazing. But maybe it's just because I'm a brilliant comedian. But I'll tell you, I was performing <laughs> – At one of my first recovery events and I had made a joke about a meeting, um, that I was having issues with this one particular meeting and some of the ways people shared in this meeting. And I made this joke and I knew there would be people in the audience that went to this meeting. And I thought, Oh no, I didn't speak the name of the meeting. It was very in a general way, this joke, but I thought for sure they're going to know I'm laughing at them. And I looked and they were laughing the hardest. And I'm not sure whether it was because they recognized themselves or didn't recognize themselves, but either way, um, it hit something in them. And I do believe that the noble roots of comedy is sort of the court jester who could say the emperor has no clothes and the king would laugh with him instead of executing him. So I believe that, you know, humor has um, a deadly serious place in the world um, for pointing out things that you know pointing out things to not just politicians but people in general that take themselves too seriously and pointing out things that are wrong um and so i think that good comedy for comedy to be good it has to hit on a truth so if i am doing my thing and people are laughing then i must have hit on a truth Mm -hmm. and if i've hit on a truth obviously i'm not the only one who experiences that for it to be a human truth lots of people have experienced it And I think I was lucky because some old timers told me when I first came in that there is an unwritten rule. I think they call it rule number 69, which is don't take yourself too damn seriously. Yeah. And I I got a shot of that when I first came in.
0: So I got to tell you, this is funny what you were just saying. Uh, One of my spiritual mentors uh, uses a particular phrase. He says, when you've seen the humor, you've seen the truth. Which sounds like that's exactly
1: what you're saying. I dig. I agree.
0: Yeah. And, and then I wonder, because that whole idea of the, what would you call it, the noble... The noble roots of comedy. Noble roots of comedy. <laughs> so do you suppose that, surely this must be true, but so some part of that must have been because people with some wisdom know they need to get grounded in, what, some humility, some truth-telling, some whatever, so that it, like, blows up their, you know, getting to attach to themselves, taking themselves too seriously.
1: Yeah, it must be. I mean, you wonder why, how it came to be that kings employed jesters, you know, could they, mm-hmm. they needed a like everybody needs to laugh. Maybe mm-hmm. that's a basic human need. Maybe subtly they needed somebody who wasn't afraid to point out to them, mm-hmm. you know, the truth, you know, because otherwise around you as a powerful king, you would have just had sycophants. Yeah. Or people who are, right. are, are, are buttering you up or trying to take over your position, but nobody's really there trying to tell you the truth. And, and the gesture played that role. And you see that today. I mean, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, that's, they're direct descendants, I believe, of the court jesters, you know. And also, it's easier to tell, and I've experienced this in my marriage and with my children, it's much easier to point out a hard truth to somebody in a funny way. The other person is more likely to take the message of what you're saying if you can make them laugh.
0: And Well, that's brilliant.
1: When I was yeah. growing up, I always surrounded myself with the funniest people I could find, and our unwritten rule, I always thought, <laughs> was that it's okay to be cruel as long as you're funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's kind of cruel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't laugh and cry at the same time.
0: <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Yeah. So when you, when you think about this from the standpoint of people who are listening, and many of them would say, oh, I could never do stand-up. And I'm not suggesting they should. But, like, let's assume some of our listeners are taking themselves too seriously. What advice do you give them? I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you find something funny? How do you even begin the process? <laughs> they're probably not going to get up there on a the stage and try to stand up out of the blue.
1: Right. Well, it's a conundrum because if you are, in fact, taking yourself too seriously, <laughs> <laughs> you've probably already turned off this podcast in disgust. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think for me it was a process of not taking myself too seriously. You know, I'm at my best when I can laugh at myself. You know, we have a joke in my house with my kids where it comes from a book that we read, a library book, that the refrain in the book was, even mommies make mistakes. So Mm -hmm. I trip and fall and spill juice all over the floor and the kids laugh and say, even mommies make mistakes. (laughs) You know, most of the time. (laughs) But I know for me, when I can't laugh about something, when I get angry instead, there is something deeply wrong with me. Because I think the first thing to go is my sense of humor. And when my funny bone is broken, I know I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm.
0: So on a serious note, seriously, uh, yeah, but I am curious. So how do you play that, though, when, when there are probably times when you do need to be somber, serious? You know, some things probably are not laughing matter. Yeah, how do you balance that? I mean, how do you know when it's like, oh, well, I, need to, I probably need to not make fun of this one? Or do you?
1: (laughs) I'm sure I've crossed that line. (laughs) And I believe if you talk to any comedian, they've probably crossed the line. Um, And it may be just that, you know, to be really serious, there's very little in life that can't be a laughing matter. Life Mm -hmm. is such an illusion. I think that, you know, life is really an illusion. Here we are on this giant playground learning lessons. And it's sort of like, have you ever watched kids in a kindergarten class, maybe doing like an egg relay mm-hmm. and some of them are so serious and they have their little tongues sticking out and their hands shaking and they're just so, you know, intent on their goal and you laugh, right? right? You see that and you just think, ha ha, he's taking that so seriously. I believe that, you know, the powers that be God, if you want to call it that looks at us. Doing what we do in all of our earnestness and laughs and laughs. Mm -hmm. I do believe that most of life can be a laughing matter. And um, I do think that laughter is serious. And um, I'm sure... Laughter
0: is serious.
1: I mean, what did I say? No, no. I'm (laughs) actually
0: actually thinking... I mean, that was a profound statement, I think.
1: That...
0: That laughter is actually a serious matter, I think. Right.
1: Laughter is very important. I mean, I believe that laughter is hope. And, Mm. you know, if we get too caught up in our own little personal tragedies and we can't see the humor in it. Then we're stuck. How mm-hmm. do you get out of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I have, uh, you know, I was always trying to be funny, I believe growing up in my house and I grew up in a house where I believe sometimes the unspoken message was don't laugh too loud. Don't enjoy yourself too much. <laughs> you know, it was right. sort of that Germanic Scandinavian, you know, button it up sort of upbringing take
0: ourselves seriously right take
1: ourselves pretty damn (laughs) seriously and i do remember so 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 many times crossing that line where i could see that what i was saying was crossing somebody else's boundary Mm -hmm. like they didn't think it was very funny and yet i mean i still think that that it's pretty funny Mm -hmm. that it can be um so i don't know what the balance is
0: So here's actually a curious question. You know, uh, not long ago, Robin Williams committed suicide. We Mm -hmm. now know that he had some mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Many people would say um, a guy in recovery, Mm -hmm. um, many many years, and some would say he was perhaps the funniest person many of us have ever seen. I mean, just a, a comic wit. Of, of incredible proportion mm-hmm. and of course there's been some armchair psychologizing it's like well see he was just overcompensating for this deep dark awful place but but I know that his death was a real it was a real it was a real fetch-up moment for many in recovery it's like wow that's like
1: mm-hmm. that's
0: that's remarkable that, mm-hmm. that that could come to pass
1: mm-hmm. how do you view something like that I was very sad um, when he took his life. I grew up with Robin Williams. I mean, I looked up to him definitely, um, even though I never knew I'd I'd be a stand up comedian of any stripe, not to compare myself to him, but. (laughs) But (laughs) you know, (laughs) they say, they also, I remember that they would always say that Robin Williams had like a genius IQ, Mm -hmm. and that along with having a very high IQ often comes kind of a depression, which I think is sort of the same deal that we deal with in, in recovery. You know, I think that recovering people are prone to uh, the way that we already view the world can be frustrating and lead us into a depression or um, even suicide because we sort of feel like outsiders. And it's that same outsider view that gives rise to comedy. Mm. You can't find the funny in society unless you're seeing it from the outside just a little bit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So the emperor has no clothes. You can only see that if you're outside of the situation. And so they're linked hand in hand. So I have heard lots of people say I've heard comedians say that they are comedians because they really are desperate for people to love them. And that's the only way they can get approval. I'm not sure I buy that. I think they believe that but i do honestly believe that comedy is much deeper than that it's it's a more serious business <laughs> <laughs> than we think you know and and of course there's different kinds of comedy i'm not just talking about mean comedy where you're making fun of people i'm talking about true comedy where you can point out to somebody something that maybe they do and make them laugh at themselves or like me being able to laugh at myself um that serves a deeper spiritual need mm-hmm. Um, that we have, and um, when we lose our sense of humor, then then the depression just takes over. So, you know, perhaps just for a minute, Robin lost his sense of humor, and yeah. I, I've been there. I've definitely been in that place, and unfortunately, you know, while he was in that moment, he took his life, and that's a, yeah. a loss for us all.
0: Yeah. Well, isn't it ironic <clears throat> that the starting point for this was your story, you know, kind of deep, dark, ugly, and yet it took that deep, dark, ugly, to open up a space where now you're like you're like doing comedy. I mean, how ironic!
1: It is. It is very ironic.
0: <laughs> so it, it probably would be appropriate as a as a last question is to ask you like where are you going with this? What do you think is going to happen? How do you play in this space, Liz?
1: Right. This is a very good question, and um, it's funny because when I did that very first gig at that um, women's retreat. Everybody loved it. I felt very natural. And and of course, everybody's next question is, well, what's next? What's next? Where are you performing next? What are you going to do with it? And I said, I have no idea. And I'm kind of sticking to that because something that I've learned in recovery is how to go with the flow. I never did that before I became a recovering person (laughs) and never was able to go with the flow. I always had to control, manipulate and push things, And I sometimes feel that urge, you know, I need to do a little bit more, um, you know, marketing of myself, or maybe I should be aspiring to this gig or that gig. But I am wary that sometimes when you take something that you get so much enjoyment out of and make it into work, that it's no longer fun. I need it to still be fun for me. And so far it's worked for me to just put it out to the universe and say, all right, higher powers. I think I'm kind of funny. If you think I'm funny too, or serving a purpose, then use me. And so far, people have come out of the woodwork, like Including yourself me. and here we are on a podcast which I never would have guessed you know a year or two ago, so I have absolutely no idea what 's next. More will be revealed,
0: sure, yeah, and uh, the gods are having their way with us, the gods of comedy right at this moment, right,
1: right? well, you know they say, make a plan, and God laughs so
0: <laughs> there's the humor. <laughs> So I do want to say this. I am aware that I have a real elevated feeling from just having spent this time with you and laughed with you, and um, I mean, I can feel it in the body. That this stuff really does—I mean, it really does do something to us. That's that's really powerful and useful. So, congratulations on your budding comedic career.
1: Thank you. I really enjoy it, and um, and I hope it's a it's a useful thing. It's another it's another way I can serve.
0: (laughs) beautiful. Well said. So this is Ron Chapman for Progressive Recovery. We've been talking about humor. This is one of our progressive content items. Check out more on the website, progressiverecovery.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. To listen to more or to learn more, visit progressiverecovery.org. Better still, please subscribe to our updates. There are excellent special guests in the queue, and we'll soon announce Series 2 of the Recovery Sessions. Thanks again for listening. This is Ron Chapman for Progressive Recovery. Bye for now.